Truth Espresso, episode 103. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, this is Daniel Minnick, the host of Truth Espresso, and welcome. If you're just tuning in, we are on the second episode of a series that we started last week, Memorial Day weekend, about marriage and... I would highly recommend that if you haven't listened to the episode from last week, that you listen to it because you get to know me a little more and get to know my wife, Chelsea, a little more because we share how God wrote our love story. So you get to see how we met, how we dated, how we became friends, and how we became engaged and got married. And so I think that was a really cool, really good episode, and really you could see things come out of our hearts, and I think it was also a pretty cute episode too, so <laughs> so I highly recommend that you listen to that, and um, the last episode was the springboard into getting to talk about topics related to marriage, how is uh, marriage defined in the Bible and in culture, and to continue this series to really get it off the ground. Welcome back to Truth Espresso, my sweet and beautiful wife, Chelsea. So Chelsea, welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to do this series with you. Well, I love having you on uh, Sweetheart, and I know our listeners do too. And I'm really excited to get into talking about marriage because it's something that we both experience near and dear to our hearts with each other. And so I think one of the first things um, in talking about marriage is really to ask the question, what is marriage? Just how do we define marriage? If we were to look up marriage in a dictionary, just what would it say? Could we actually have a, a sentence or two that would actually define what marriage is against what marriage is not? And so, I decided to go to the most likely source that you should think about going to, I guess, that would normally be your favorite search engine on the internet. Isn't the internet and search engine supposed to answer all your nagging questions? And of course, the most popular search engine these days that kind of controls all the information in the entire world is Google. <laughs> And so I uh, decided to search Google for the definition of marriage. And Google used basically uh, something from Oxford to display in the search engine a dictionary definition of marriage. And I'll have a link to this as well as other dictionaries in the show notes. So according to Google... As it has sourced its dictionary data for a definition of marriage, Google says, quote, The legally or formally recognized union of two people as partners in a personal relationship. 
And then in parentheses, it has historically and in some jurisdictions, specifically a union between a man and a woman, uh, close parentheses. So the primary definition was the legally and formally recognized union of two people as partners in a personal relationship. So, sweetheart, does this sound like a good and comprehensive definition of marriage to you? No, it does not. I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, that it's not really a definition that is in agreement with what the Bible says. And it just seems like it's very vague that people could interpret a lot of meaning into the different words they used. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think you're on to something there, sweetheart. And there's one thing that they did get right. It says two people. I mean, at least um, it's not one person, it's not three persons or any number of persons, but it does say two people, so at least that's correct. But it says people, it doesn't specify who these people are. (laughs) So what's missing from this definition of marriage here? Well, when you look at Genesis and it tells you that God made them man and woman, so specifying that marriage is between a man and a woman. Yeah, so God created the male and female, and for this reason, as Jesus says in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, for this cause shall a man, that means something, leave his father and mother, that means something, and cleave to his wife, that means something, and they too shall be one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So Jesus recognized, quoting Genesis chapter 2, what marriage is, and there's something more specific than what this Google definition of marriage is. It's not just a legal or formally recognized union of two people as partners in a personal relationship. That seems to be quite vague and not as specific as what the Word of God says, that it's a man leaving father and mother, who themselves obviously are married. So you have marriage, and that propagates marriage, and that propagates marriage. You have father and mother who are married, and then their children leave the nest and a man and a woman then come together from different families and then they get married and they become one flesh and that seems to be the way nature works as God intended is it not (laughs) and so that was the current definition of marriage as you'd find in google But let's look at uh, other dictionaries, particularly let's look at an older uh, Webster's Dictionary from 1828. And this is from Webster's Dictionary, 1828.com. And you look up the word marriage. This older dictionary says, quote, the act of uniting a man and a woman for life, wedlock, the legal union of a man and woman for life. Marriage is a contract, both civil and religious, hmm, by which the parties engage to live together in mutual affection and fidelity till death shall separate them. Marriage was instituted by God himself for the purpose of preventing the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes, for promoting domestic felicity, and for securing the maintenance and education of children. 
<laughs> Unquote. Wow, that seems to be a more a fuller definition of marriage years ago compared to the very brief and very vague and obscure definition of marriage that we found in Google. So you think things progress, they should be getting better and more scientific and more specific, but it seems like when it comes to the definition of marriage, things keep getting more hazy and <laughs> more obscure and less specific. And then uh, Webster's 1828 concludes the definition by quoting, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, Hebrews 13.4. So it's interesting that Webster's 1828 actually defines marriage according to the Bible. So, babe, I'm kind of remembering we read some of the biography of Noah Webster with the boys, and I remember that he used the Bible to help him write out the dictionary and some of his definitions. And I know at Pensacola Christian College, we were required to use the 1828 dictionary <laughs> because of wow. the um, more biblical-based definitions there. But we see that in a lot of areas where, yes, as time goes on, you would think that we would be improving on definitions or clarifying things. But instead, they're removing God. They're removing the Bible. They're taking him out of the picture. So things are getting more into gray areas and trying to redefine what marriage is and all that stuff. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there, sweetheart, because uh, as Webster recognized in 1828 in defining marriage, he said that it was instituted by God himself. And that's true, because without God and without the Bible, really, if you think about it, how would an institution of marriage actually arise? <laughs> Without God and without the Bible as your foundation for truth, you know, it doesn't seem like there's really any reason to have some kind of formal institution of marriage. <laughs> and that shows in when you have these modern definitions that really try to make it so obscure that it really loses all of its meaning. <laughs> And now, let's move a little bit forward into 1913. There's a, a version of a Webster Dictionary, webster-dictionary.org, and this is the 1913 version that says, quote, Legal union of a man and a woman for life as husband and wife, wedlock, matrimony, and then quotes, marriage is honorable in all, Hebrews 13.4. So in 1913, a little over 100 years ago, about 108 years ago, there is still defining marriage as a union of man and woman for life. And quotes from the Bible there, because even at this time, just like the seven day week, <laughs> recognize some of these things that they make no sense whatsoever unless they actually came from God and his word. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, just like there's no explanation for a seven day week. And I remember the French Revolution where they tried to get rid of that and set up some 10 day week that didn't make any any real sense for how we're designed to work and rest in those type of cycles there. There's really no logical reason to have a marriage and define it in any kind of specificity without the Bible as the foundation. And 
1913, the dictionary still recognized this truth. And then I have another dictionary, a Laird Lee's Webster's New Standard Dictionary from 1922, which says, quote, a ceremony by which a man, so it's defining marriage as this definition is referring to the ceremony like it's like a verb, a ceremony by which a man and woman become husband and wife. So it doesn't have the for life and stuff, but this is a different kind of edition of it, probably different publishers, but it still recognized that it's a man and a woman. And now that has definitely changed recently. Even I saw dictionaries, like someone would reference a dictionary from the early 1990s that still define marriage as a man and a woman. And so things have changed pretty recently and have gone downhill when it comes to the definition or the concept of marriage. And of course, dictionaries have been quickly being up to date as we're redefining almost every word now in the English language because words no longer carry their meanings anymore. We got to define them for political reasons. Mm. And so we need to recognize then that if we really want to get the best definition of marriage, a dictionary is not going to be the best source. The Word of God is, and I thank God for the great men like Noah Webster who defined marriage according to the Bible in their dictionaries, but the Word of God endures, and now in all the chaos and confusion that we have today, we can read God's Word and see what marriage is really all about. And if we look at the Word of God, we see that marriage is God's covenant design. It's God's design. It's, it's not the design of man, because if marriage is the design of man, it can change, it can fail, it can be dissolved. It, it, it can just turn into absolute nothingness. I think what God ordains is orderly, and then what culture or the world says is right is chaotic. So I like the picture of, okay, God wants us to know exactly what marriage is supposed to look like. He lays it out clear and plain. He lays it out plain as day. And I just think that that's what God intended for us to know exactly what to do. Yes, right, sweetheart. And it's it's just interesting. If you come from a secular, uh, atheistic, materialistic worldview, as I said before, marriage really has no excuse for existing. If we think that humans are just some evolved form of animal mammal, why do we even have marriage? Because we don't see, we don't see uh, any other animal having any kind of ceremony for marriage, and we don't see them making any kind of commitment of two people, two uh, creatures of themselves. Yeah, there are animal families and so on, but there really is no concept of this legalized commitment of two together. <laughs> and so it's like, when you have a secular worldview and you're trying to hold on to some <laughs> minimized and messed up and obscure form of marriage, you're just borrowing a bit from the Christian worldview, trying to cling on to an element of Christianity there while you try to spite it. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So basically, you know, the world's definition of marriage is like a tainted view of the image of God holding on to a part of the image of God while denying the God who created the institution. Did you know that Striving for Eternity provides speakers and seminars that we would come to your church and disciple your people? We have seminars on the Bible interpretation made easy. Creation science, evangelism, presuppositional apologetics, even on sexual abuse. These are just some of the many things that we could provide for your church. Consider inviting one of our speakers to your church. You can contact us at speaker at strivingforeternity.org. Now that we've talked about the definition of marriage, that it's from the Word of God, that it's a a covenant commitment between a man and a woman, with the goal being for life, let's move on to kind of comparing the biblical concept of covenant, that marriage indeed is a covenant in the Word of God, to the world's concept of marriage as a contract. So here we have uh, the biblical covenant of marriage versus the world's contract of marriage. So what's the difference between a covenant and a contract? How often, when we're dealing with legal issues, do we see people engage in what is called a covenant? You probably don't hear much about that. It it was a little more common, of course, uh, a century or two or so ago, but not so much today, because a covenant is much deeper than a contract. A covenant is really an unconditional pledge of one's life, regardless of which member or members might break their pledge, the others can still uphold it. So when you have multiple people form a covenant, one person's betrayal doesn't necessarily result in anyone else betraying. It's a commonly shared goal and if and if some drop out, others can say, no, we are we, I covenanted, I am with this to the end. And an example of such a covenant is the Declaration of Independence, where they said we pledge our lives, our sacred duty, probably quoting it incorrectly there, but the idea of the Declaration is that you had a lot of people and the founding fathers there pledging their lives for the goal of American freedom. And and even if you had someone like uh, Benedict Arnold (laughs) betray the cause, defect to the British, it didn't break the covenant for all the members there. So a covenant is a pledge of one's life to a particular goal. In contrast to a covenant, a contract is usually a temporary agreement in which two or more parties obligate themselves to perform certain duties. But in a contract, if one party fails to complete the requirements, a judge can rule the contract null and void. So a contract is only as good as everyone fulfilling their commitment, but really it's, it's not really that strong of a commitment. And at any point in time, they can, the parties can agree to end the contract, or if one or more of the parties decide, like, eh, I want out of this, or I'm just not going to fulfill my duties, then really it just, it just breaks right there. 
there might be some penalties on someone for breaking it like if you don't uphold it then you owe this or that but a contract is meant to be ended you know either after a period of time or it can be pretty easily broken and then no one's obligated anymore and it seems like the world now views marriage like a contract rather than a covenant. But I think the, the word of God is clear that marriage is a covenant, a pledge of one's life. So the man and the woman get together and as the ceremonies show, they say their vows, you know, till death do us part. It really is a covenant. And it's interesting how many times the secular world, they'll have a ceremony, they'll have the traditional vows, but they don't mean any thing because both parties are often treating it like a contract rather than a covenant. I find it interesting too. I mean, recently, I feel like some of the shows we've seen, if there's a wedding ceremony, they'll actually eliminate a lot of the vows too. Mm. So they aren't even uh, upholding the vows or that commitment to each other. Or sometimes people will, which I know it can be sweet, you can write your own vows and stuff, but they just make it so much more superficial, I guess, (laughs) and they don't keep to the, like you said, that pledge or that commitment to be that person's partner for life. Yeah, and I think till death do us part, you know, basically for life probably scares a lot of people because why would I enter into this? You know, I found someone, I like this person, but why should I commit my life? I mean, you know, it seems like a raw deal. You know, it seems like the way the world thinks of marriage like that. If if that's really what marriage is, then I'm getting gypped out of something. It's a raw deal. And so let's redefine marriage. Let's treat marriage as, as something as much as more of a take rather rather than a give and it's more of a contract rather than a covenant it's kind of like uh okay get a new lease on life i mean it's like lease a car for three years or so and if you get tired of that car then you know find another one Ooh, this shiny new model is you know it's better than the one that i had three years ago so you know i'm done with my lease let's get a new lease and let's try something new you know with different features and so on Hopefully this kind of <laughs> plays off of that a little bit, but I was reading some of the first chapters in the Five Love Languages book, mm. which is an awesome book to go through when you're getting ready, like if you're engaged or when you are married. I know we like to go through <laughs> a bunch of different marriage books. Well, we're married just to continue to learn and grow and understanding each other. But so anyways, in the first couple chapters, it was talking about how a lot of times when people get engaged, they have a euphoric love where they just feel like they're so in love and it's all about the emotion and the hype of it. And so a lot of times they kind of disregard if there's any potential red flags or if people are saying, wait, you know, this guy has had three jobs in the last year. Is he really going to be able to support you? And they're like, oh, no, it's going to be great. I'm in love. And then after that first year or maybe two years, then that feeling dissipates. And then all of a sudden they're like, wait, what did I get into? Mm -hmm. And then they want to jump ship. And so the beginning of that book was just talking about how to just kind of tone down that whole euphoria part of it and looking at, okay, love is a choice and choosing that even when those feelings and the butterflies, when you see that person walk (laughs) in the room, when all that disappears, 
that you are still going to be in love with that person. You're still going to choose to love that person. And when we were talking about that earlier, it just reminded me of Oh, yeah, sweetheart. Yeah, you mentioned like the, you know, euphoric type of feelings, because that's something that can be fleeting and and, and be like this novelty. And, and if people think that they're going to have this novel euphoric feeling all the time, then they're going to be in for rude awakening once, you know, of course, reality sets in because you have work, you have stresses, you have downtimes, you have challenges, and, and marriage is not like a fairy tale where it's at the end of a of a you know movie you know they walk off into the sunset and they lived happily ever after it's the start of something it's the start of the rest of your life and so just as life has challenges and issues before now two people get to come together in marriage and they're going to share their challenges and issues and so marriage is something that you commit to you plan to and love as you said is not just a feeling love is a choice as you said sweetheart and so you might not always you know depending on the situation have this strong butterfly in your stomach feeling about things but love is a commitment and in marriage love should be unconditional and that's why you get married because you make the vows you commit to whether things are going good or things are going bad you are loving each other and you are going through those things together. I just want to look at, I saw this uh, article from newcreations.org called Contracts versus Covenants, Why the Difference Matters. And they're talking about marriage here, uh, uh, the concept of marriage being either a covenant, according to the Bible, or a contract, according to society. And they said, quote, marriage is rightly seen as a covenant between a man and a woman, which God hath joined together. As a covenant, marriage is until death do us part. But as a contract, marriage becomes until you do something that I don't like. <laughs> and it does seem like the world views marriage like that way, that it's like, oh, we agreed to have everything happy together all the time. But if, wait a minute, you do that? You have this habit? You you have this like? I didn't know that, you know. Oh, and some of this even resembles the way people thought during the time of Jesus as the disciples approached Jesus and asked, him, you know, master, is it um, lawful to put away one's wife for any reason? And there was actually a school of thought at that time that I know I've always heard the example, if the wife burnt your toast or something like that, that that would then be considered unfaithfulness and that therefore that was a reason the man could lawfully put her away, a divorce. But Jesus corrected them and said, In the beginning, this was not so, but because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses granted a bill of divorcement. But, you know, that's not what how God designed marriage. And Jesus defined marriage as the two becoming one flesh. And what God joined together, let no one separate. I think it's also important just thinking about that marriage is two people 
that mm-hmm. are sinful yes. coming together. So just remembering about God's grace and his forgiveness for us and mm-hmm. that we have that for each other and not having that expectation of the other person's going to be perfect, especially in that first stage of everything's great and we're so in love. And then once that dissipates, it's not that the person all of a sudden became imperfect, but those feelings disappeared. And just that is like probably the most important time to just remember about God's grace and forgiveness towards us that we can also demonstrate that to our spouse. Yes, we are. Some good thoughts there. And and as we see from the Bible, um, the way God designed marriage, the Apostle Paul in uh, Ephesians 5 mentions that marriage is a mystery concerning Christ and the church. And so, as you said, forgiveness there. Jesus was the groom there and the church is the bride. Jesus purchased the church with his life, with his blood. And so that was a covenant that Jesus did that was an effectual covenant. He married the church and he will get his bride for eternity. And it's, you know, it's an unconditional and undying love. And that's what the institution of marriage was designed for. That's what God had in mind. Redemption and eternity and unconditional love. And so continuing on with the New Creations article comparing contracts and covenants, uh, it says, quote, a contractual understanding of marriage leads to things like no-fault divorce, we see a lot of those, (laughs) and prenuptial agreements. People enter into marriages with the assumption that it is going to end. That attitude becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in most cases, unquote. So, yeah, I think the point is that very poignant there that, uh, you know, a lot of people today, when they view marriage as a contract, it's like even as they're dressed up in their wedding garb and saying their vows, it's like subconsciously they're already thinking about when this ends <laughs> and like when their agreement ends ends and how you know they're going to divide the spoils and stuff like that it's like i just can't imagine thinking of marriage that way but it's it seems to be commonplace in culture today with the contract view of marriage that it's a kind of a flippant in and a flippant out and with the idea of the end in view and that end is not till death do us part it's the end until breaking the contract do us part So, babe, I really liked um, the other night we were just kind of brainstorming about some points to talk about during this, and I really liked what you said, and you jotted down here about how God defines marriage, and you said that God defines marriage as a covenant, which we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. and it's a commitment, and it's Christ-centered. Oh, yes. And I think that that's just so important to keep in mind those three points. It's a covenant, it's a commitment to each other, and it's Christ-centered, that you always have Christ in the center of your marriage. Mm -hmm. And then we contrasted that with how culture or how the world sees marriage, and they base that on that marriage is a contract, which we've discussed that, and that it's conditional. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yes, if one person messes up or things get too hard or you finally get out of that I'm so in love stage and you're like, wait, who did I marry? I want out of this. So it's conditional. And then also that it's convenient. A lot of times it's just like, 
okay, you know, let's just get married and now we get the tax write-off or whatever. They make it more just out of a convenience for them and not that they were making that commitment to each other. So I don't know. I just liked those points that you made when we were jotting down notes before. Oh, yes. And notice that all those words start with C. So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) alliteration helps with um, learning some things. And (laughs) you're really good at, I'm always like, I have no idea how to do this. (laughs) And so, yes, uh, a contract marriage is a marriage of convenience and no commitment there. You know, it's like a very lighthearted commitment, (laughs) very weak commitment. And it's like, okay, let's get together and share some property and share some euphoria for a time. And then, you know, how many marriages are broken when it's like, oh no, you're pregnant. I didn't want kids or, oh no, you, you spent that. And there's no discussion for like, okay, well, let's plan out our spending then, you know, it's like just, oh no, you did what? Well, this contract is over (laughs) and there's no till death do us part. You know, it's like, I want out because because my convenience is now over, has been violated. So according to the world, marriage is man's contract that is perfectly normal to break. According to the Bible, marriage is God's covenant that he expects for life, because God is the giver of life. God created us in his image, and God is not someone who sets up contracts with his creatures who are made in his image. Jesus said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect or, you know, complete. And the idea of the perfection of God is that he doesn't just bail out when things get bad. And so we should follow the example of God and realize that when he sets up an institution like marriage to reflect his own attributes, his attributes don't fall apart. (laughs) You know, his attributes are eternal and we should take God at his word and, and treat marriage as he defined it, because without his definition, there really is no marriage. And so marriage is a pledge of our lives. I thought it was kind of interesting how you mentioned earlier about with the worldview on marriage, they kind of come in with the premise of the contract and there's an end to it and they're going to get out of it eventually. And I just remember some of the marriage seminars we've heard even through our church is that you should never use the word divorce in your marriage. Like you shouldn't even have that in your thoughts, especially when you're trying to work things out. And so it's just interesting, like, okay, in a Christian marriage, you're trying to work things out. You're trying to grow together. and But then in the worldview, you're coming in with that. Mm-hmm. perspective already i just feel like there's actually no foundation for that marriage anyways so no wonder it's most likely going to fall apart Mm. yes indeed sweetheart yes you mentioned that when you're committed to marriage and thinking about marriage you, you know you mentioned a lot of people will have divorce always ready in their mind as an option and that when you're committed to a marriage divorce should not be an option now we're going to talk about divorce in a later episode and when is divorce an option when is it not an option so we'll we'll talk more about divorce in detail but for the point that we're trying to make here is if you're committed to a marriage and making it work, 
If you're trying to solve a problem or conflict, you shouldn't have the word divorce on your mind as an option. Now, that's not to say that there aren't situations where divorce, you know, will be a resort. You know, there are situations where divorce uh, ultimately ends up becoming the necessary situation. But if you are committed to the marriage, try to keep the word divorce out of <laughs> your thinking. Like if you're trying to solve the problem, you don't start off with thinking, okay, is this uh, a cause for divorce? First, think about how do I solve the problem in such a way that um, this marriage could work? <laughs> so, Viewing marriage as a contract reflects, by design, our hesitation to commit to the well-being of others above our own lives, which is what I believe the Bible says about marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands, and yea, submit to each other. The whole idea is that we treat our spouse above our own selves, even as the Apostle Paul said, referring to the body of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, let each esteem other better than themselves. And so uh, that principle especially should play out in marriage. And that's the recipe really for a successful marriage is when both sides, instead of looking at marriage as what can I get out of this, then you'll always be in conflict. But if you're thinking first about what could I give, how can I submit to the well-being of my spouse, that is the covenant view of marriage. When you have a contract view of marriage, we expect to break a contract as if it were really no big deal. So I suggest view marriage as a pledge of your life. As you commit to the good of your spouse, your love will grow like a seed into a tree. The roots will drive deep into the ground. If you focus on truly caring for your spouse without thinking about what you'll get in return, you will find that your love will be dimensions greater than those first feelings of, as you mentioned, sweetheart, nervousness and butterflies in your stomach when he or she was once a stranger walking by and catching her eye. <laughs> now, I, I was looking at um, an article on Crosswalk.com preparing for this episode by Rod Edmondson. The article is called The Seven Commandments of Christian Marriage. And when uh, Ron was speaking about loving unconditionally, he says, quote, God commands us to love our enemies. How much more should this commitment be strong within a marriage? Unquote. That's definitely a deep thought there. You know, Jesus told his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you. If we're supposed to love and do good for our enemies, you know, that's that's an unconditional act there toward our enemies. And, you know, our spouse is not our enemy. So if we get into, if we're committing to love a spouse and be intimate with our spouse, and be friends with our spouse and share a life with our spouse, how much more should we be exercising unconditional love, even if, as Jesus commanded, we should do acts of unconditional love toward people who hate us? So I'll just mention one more thing that I thought was really interesting, which I kind of wanted to know your thoughts on this. I was trying to figure out what were the top marriage books that are out there and kind of what do they talk about and there's one audiobook that was called The 8080 Marriage. 
I just thought the description was very interesting. It was talking about how the husband and wife that wrote the book, they were successful people in their careers and they just could not make their marriage work. And they thought that because they viewed marriage as you have to be fair and you have to share everything equally and both give equally and that wasn't working. So they came up with the idea that each person gives 80%. And I just found that so interesting because I'm like, all right, that is totally not what God tells us. And how do you figure out what 80% is exactly? Yeah, it seems kind of an ethereal concept there to figure, you know, how do you figure out, okay, let me calculate 100% of my heart and then subtract 20% from that, you know, it'd be kind of interesting. So it wasn't a book about a marriage between two people who are 80 years old, huh? I know. (laughs) But, yeah, okay, when you're committed to each other and you view marriage as a covenant, like we've been talking about, then you view your marriage like you want to be selfless. Yes. You have the other person, like you said, the other person's need ahead of yours. And then the world's view, and I'm thinking that this book is more of a selfish view Mm. of marriage and even the idea that you have to have a fairness in your marriage. To me, that just seems Mm. kind of an odd term in marriage that has to be fair. (laughs) It doesn't make sense to me. But to me, it's like, okay, you're both on the same team. You're trying to work together. So even if someone is struggling, the other person comes and helps them and mm-hmm. you're constantly working together. It's not about being fair. Like, oh, you had this much time to read a book. So now I get this much time to read a book. And uh-huh. I don't yeah. know. It just seems interesting. So yeah, th- just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> that sounds to me like a good strategy for like business partners, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, okay, fairness and uh, 80% of both sides that sounds more like a business partnership between two uh ceos or something. like even sports teams don't uh, they say like give a hundred percent or, or even 110 percent yeah <laughs> yeah see so, you know if you could give your 110 percent to win a sports game why can't you give your 110 percent to make a marriage work yeah, yeah. Crazy. (laughs) And yeah, so it's like a marriage is far deeper as an unconditional pledge, a covenant, as the Word of God says. A marriage is far deeper than uh, a business partnership, you know, and than any other institution there is in the world. And that's why marriage reflects God's design. It reflects the attributes of God, as I mentioned, as both male and female are created in the image of God. Really, the two that come together and are one flesh, that together shows the unconditional love of God. It's like kind of mirroring in a sense the love of of God intimately in the Trinity you know it's an eternal boundless love and that's the way that's why God designed marriage to reflect himself 
And as I said before, and I'll repeat it again, without the Word of God, without God being the source of the institution of marriage, there is no hope for marriage. There is no reason for such a thing to exist. It makes absolutely no sense in a godless, atheistic, materialistic universe. And so, thank God for the love that he wove into the fabric of the institution of marriage. And when you think of it as a covenant rather than a contract, that it's meant for life, that it is a man and a woman as God is designed, biologically, marriage can work. (laughs) And of course, it takes two to tango. Of course, we'll eventually talk about the issue of divorce, but when two people are committed to making marriage work, according to the Word of God, then marriage is an incredibly wonderful thing. Yeah, so I found this great verse that we could end with, if you'd like. It's Ecclesiastes 9.9, and it says that men should live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of your life. And so there you go. You have <laughs> you have the definition of marriage right there, and it's a, uh, that shows the nature of marriage as a covenant, because it's for life, and it's man living with the wife of his youth. And so I, th- yeah, sweetheart, that was a wonderful verse to end this episode. So before we close this. I gotta mention, I gotta add another little hint to the surprise that I've been talking about. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> so, drum roll, please. <laughs> uh, I, the last time I mentioned the surprise, I said that it involved words. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and so, to expand on that a little bit, the surprise is that. I have a book coming up pretty soon. What? (laughs) So the surprise is a book uh, that I have co-authored with uh, my twin brother that I mentioned last episode. And so uh, look forward to us uh, releasing a book pretty soon. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) So proud of you. (laughs) Oh, thank you, sweetheart. So there you are. Surprise is a book. And then uh, we'll eventually reveal the title of it and what it's about and a release date. <laughs> Yay. And so that's it for this episode of Truth Espresso and look forward to our next episode where we're going to talk about tips for singles looking for a spouse. So you singles out there, this will be for you, but it's not going to be just about singles because we're also going to be talking about what does one flesh mean as uh, the man is joined to the wife and they two become one flesh. We're going to dive a little deep on that and really think about in our mind just how involved does it mean for the two to be one flesh. And so God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 